This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There was a referee who was doing a game in March Madness last year. That is the U.S. College Basketball Tournament, Championship Tournament. And it was the final eight, the Elite Eight, they call it, the quarterfinals for the national championships. The two schools were Kentucky University and North Carolina, two massive basketball powerhouses. And the referee at the center of this thing was a guy named, uh, what is his name? John Higgins. And he is a, an exceptionally well-known referee. He has done ton. I mean, he's, he's as well-known in NCAA basketball circles as anybody. He's done millions of games, relatively speaking. Sports Illustrated actually wrote about him. He is that prolific. He is that well-known. Uh, they called him, quote, the most traveled, most recognized, most wanted, most mocked, and most loathed referee in college basketball. He kind of, lots of people have lots of opinions on him. However, that is typical of a referee, especially one who people know who they are because they do a lot of work, presumably because they do a good job. But after this particular game that Kentucky lost, it was a big game, their coach, John Calipari, blamed the loss not on his players, not on, didn't credit North Carolina, he blamed it on the officials, and soon the spotlight shone on John Higgins. He was the guy that somehow had become the cause of this to Kentucky fans. Well, this led to an absolute barrage of public criticism and online abuse and a radio station that continued to harass him, which led to more abuse. People threatening he and his wife. He needed a bodyguard to walk around. He had a a roofing business on the side that the website for that got so bogged down with bad reviews from people who hadn't even used the service that it essentially cost him tens of thousands of dollars, apparently. Well, he has now sued the station, but it all leads, it's a long intro, but it all leads to the discussion of where is the line? Where is the line? Because we know people are going to yell something at a referee at a game, or we know they're going to mutter under their breath, but where is the line? Well, Barry Mano is the founder and president of the National Association of Sports Officials. It represents thousands of referees and officials at all levels up to and including the top levels of sports in North America. He joins me now. Barry, thanks for doing this tonight. You bet. Glad to be with you. Uh, would it be a fair guess to say, maybe not to this level, but th- these kind of things are not all that rare? They're, they're not rare. <clears throat> and they're not rare, especially at the uh, youth and, and rec levels, more than anything. The thing with John Higgins, who happens to be one of our members and, and a friend of mine, um, this got tremendous notoriety because of the venue in which it happened. It was a huge uh, game. A huge game. He got uh, over 3,000 death threats. Uh, as you said it accurately, his business was uh, trashed for a while because of social media. And then just a sidebar you'll find interesting, we had our national summit conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and we wanted to give John Higgins a great call award, not for what he did on the floor, but more for the way he professionally handled this aftermath he poured no gasoline uh he he did a really good job even though he was very upset so we wanted to bring him to louisville and give him bringing him up on the stage during our gala banquet and give him the great call award but uh, the word got out that he was coming to louisville he was coming back to kentucky for the first time 
And this was at the end of July, so many months had passed. And once that word got out, the death threats started again and forced us to stand down. We decided not to bring John to Kentucky because we were worried about his safety. Which is, which is, you know, it is remarkable that uh, even after this, and I'm assuming that these were, that there was enough concern that these were legitimate death threats that it was worth not doing it. Well, what we did, of course, is I talked to head of security for officials in Lexington and the head of uh, security for officials in Louisville itself, and those two men said, we recommend you don't go through with this. Huh. We don't know what's going to happen. It's just too risky. So we decided not to do it. Okay, so Barry, the interesting part about, well, there's a lot of interesting parts about this, but you are an official, you are an avowed defender and representative of officials, you you believe in officials, and that's, we all know that, that's what, that's what your job is. But you also know that officials are going to, at times, find themselves being criticized, find themselves being heckled, find themselves being booed, whatever it is. Where is the line? Like, for, for, from an official's perspective, I mean, obviously you would love to never be booed, but where is the line that is okay and where's the line that isn't okay? Well, booing is fine. In fact, I, I have a speech I give, which is you have to love it when they boo. Otherwise, don't be in this. <laughs> That's true. It's about, it's about private space. It's about anything that is proposing assaultative behavior. It's about trying to do something to us in our personal lives. That is a line that just cannot be crossed. It can't be permitted. You can disagree with us. There it is. You know, we're not there to make you happy. We're there to enforce the rules of the game, and essentially we are delivering the word no when we make a call. Mm. And you and, don't... And people... Sorry, you don't, as a guy, you as a person who represents these officials, you don't take the position that nobody should ever boo or heckle an official if they're sitting in oh, the crowd. That's, and, that's fair game, right? No. When I, when I was refereeing major college basketball, I loved it when people booed. Because under my breath, I'm saying, "Hey, that's okay, man. I got this play right." <laughs> okay. You have to have that. You have to have that in you. You keep those things to yourself. But the booing is not a problem. The yelling and screaming, as long as it doesn't have some type of racial slur or trying to, you know, get into my personal life. Beyond that, we can handle all that. And, and we're not. And again, we're not talking about kids' sports either. We're talking about high-level elite sports that we're that you're dealing with here. Oh yeah, I mean the the, the biggest problem we have as sports officials is at the youth levels. With with what? That's Just people problem. bailing out because they get sick of it. Oh, absolutely. All right, all right. We're ha- we're having all kinds of trouble bringing men, women, and young people into this under- undertaking because they don't want to put up with that. So the, okay, so who do you, when you hear a story like this then, and again, you say that this is not all that unusual, where does the blame lie? Does the blame all, lie? All the death threats, all the death threats are unusual, don't get me wrong. Oh, no, sure, sure. Right. But when you, when you have a story like this, does the blame lie with the coach who sort of lit the fuse and got everyone fired up? Does it lie with the media who fanned it? Does it lie with the fans? Does it lie with everybody? Where, where do you look at and say, you know what, there is the point where this should never have happened? Well, you, you, you laid much of the blame on, on Calipari, and I don't quite agree with that. Coaches say things. They need to be more restrained. But he said things after the game. And, and, and coaches tend to say those things. What really poured gasoline on this was the, broad, the sports broadcaster, radio broadcaster, 
Matt Jones, who went on and on about this and put all of John Higgins' personal information on the airwaves and exhorted his listeners to trash the guy. And that's why yesterday John Higgins' attorney unveiled a lawsuit against that radio station. What happens if he wins? I mean, does this change how referees, how officials deal with criticism if he wins, or is this a one-off because of the unique situation? Uh, if he wins, what changes is going to be on the broadcast side. It's not going to be on our side. John Higgins is standing up for all of us. We, we at NESO, he's one of our 20, 27,000 members. We stand ready to help him in a whole series of ways if he needs help. He's doing this on his own right now, and he feels he's doing it for all of us. You just can't accept this type of behavior and just turn the other cheek. It's not acceptable. You mentioned that this is the coach, John Calipari, that you didn't put as much criticism on him. Leagues, though, are very loath to allow players, but specifically coaches, from criticizing officials. More often than not, if after a game a, a coach criticizes an official, they'll receive some kind of fine or, at the very least, a stern talking to and told, don't do it again. Is that, sure. in your mind, is that a sufficient penalty to try and stop this? Or should we be stopping it? Should we be saying, no, no, you know what, if you feel that way, First Amendment, free speech, say whatever you want. No, we have to have controls on this. I think the pro leagues do this better than anybody. So it's always instructive to watch if a coach in the NBA or a player goes off on referees, what the league does. I have found that to be very thoughtful and very appropriate. We need more of that at the major college level because, look, as we're finding out certainly in basketball and in football, this is business. This is not about putting kids through school. This is business. Mm -hmm. And so we need to approach it just like the pro leagues do. Okay, Barry, now the tricky part, because we know, and not, this is not what I'm going to ask you about next. As far as I know, this has nothing to do with this particular case. There was not, to my knowledge, a call or a series of calls in this particular game by John Higgins that were botched calls. This was just people were upset with the subjective ruling that he made. But we do know that at times referees have had moments where something has been made a mess of, that they're human, these things happen. I'm wondering if it would cut some of the anger towards the referees that fans feel if when those things, when those egregious mistakes happened, if leagues were to be more public by saying referee X made a screw up here and we're acknowledging that publicly, if there was a belief that the ref, that the league was admitting that that happened, would that make the fans less angry toward it because they then believe, hey, someone else saw this? I'll say two things about that. One, that's already being done. So, some places, well. sure, yeah. I mean, in the pro leagues, in the major college leagues in, in the United States, that is being done all the time. If we mess something up, if we improperly enforce a rule, that is not done under a bushel basket. The second thing I want to say is, this whole behavior scenario cannot turn on the rightness or the wrongness of the calls we make. That's going to take you down a road I don't think you want to go down. Why not? Well, explain that. Explain that. Well, in other words, if we make a mistake, that's going to give you a right to act a certain way. We have to have a certain amount of discipline as sports fans. We have to have a certain amount of acceptance that these men and women 
who have over a 90% success rate, by the way, there is that 10% or 8% that we don't get right. What would you like us to do? That's the question. We can only call what we believed we saw, correct? I, I would hope so. Other than that, you're asking us to guess. We can only call what we believe we saw. Referees aren't out there purposely trying to direct the call a certain way or not. It, it, that's a fiction. So we can only do as good as we can see, and that ain't 100%, and it never will be. All right, so let me turn that around then, because this week, and you may or may not have heard about this, but this week here in Hamilton, uh, there was a uh, call that was made in the game with the Tiger Cats last weekend, and it went to the replay center, and the replay center made a ruling that the league then on, I think, Monday came out and said, you know what, uh, yeah, they messed that one up. That did not fall in, that did not rise to the standards that we accept as a penalty in this league. Some people are saying, okay, there you go. That's transparency by the league. That's a good thing then because the league is saying, as you just described, hey, it, it does happen out there. Is that a good thing then to, to, to point the refs out? What you're talking about now are what I call the dueling realities. And what happens is referees out on the field or floor, they make a call. It goes to a replay center or command center and then or, or a replay booth in football stadiums and – those replay officials look at it, and to the best of their abilities, they look at it and say, you know, the referee's called A. I think it's B. It's going to be B. Now we go forward. Now the league office, having a little more time, they look at all the stuff the replay guys did, and they say, you know, we think it should be A. Well, that's nice, but it sounds like we have three different realities going on here. So if it's going to be finally the league saying what it's going to say, what I would say is this, make all the replay decisions in the command center. Hmm. Just go do it. Got to go, but uh, just very quickly, is this, with what's happening with John Higgins right now, is this, from your experience in refereeing across North America, from officiating, is this the worst case scenario you've seen, or have there been worse things? Oh, no, we've got a couple people killed. Uh, this is Seriously? Yeah, and this is not good, but what we're doing on October 18th, we're all going to Omaha, Nebraska, where John Higgins lives, and he's going to get the great call award in front of about 200 high school basketball referees. That's how we're going to deal with it. But so people have, officials in North America have been killed for things they did sure. on the floor or the or the field. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. There were, there were two of them in just three years, yeah. Recently? Yeah, that was uh, we we did two feature stories in Referee Magazine. Wow, it happened within the last four years. And w- and were these just crazed fans who hunted them down and and killed yeah, them? Well, players. Players. Uh, one player was so upset in the soccer match, he he slugged as hard as he could. Uh, Ricardo Portillo, a soccer referee in Sandy, Utah. I do remember that one. I yeah, I remember that one. Now that you mention it, yes, uh-huh. of course. Okay. So so I would say this. If Portillo kicked the call, does he deserve to get punched and killed? It's a good point. Barry Mano, uh, always appreciate the time. Barry Mano, of yeah. the founder and president of the National Association of Sports Officials. Uh, sir, your time is very much appreciated. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, it's one of those things 
And the reason I asked him right off the bat about the line, it's one of those things, I, and even he acknowledges, he's a, he's a guy who represents, what did he say, 20,000 officials across this country, across North America. Booing is okay. Screaming is okay. Criticizing is okay. We all do that. We've all done that. Believe me, I last weekend, there were an awful lot of Tiger Cat fans who were watching who were doing that very thing. But there is a line somewhere that, well... This referee, John Higgins, would clearly argue has been crossed in this case, where you take what's happening on the floor and you expand it to personal, private life, business, wife, family. It's that that's when it even if the official is in your mind the biggest moron in the world. It's still a sport. It's still a game. And I, I, boy, I know. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge sports fan. I love sports. I understand the passion. I understand how much people are into it. I've, I'm there too at times, but it's still at the end, when you turn off your TV set, when you leave the stadium, it is still a game. And what makes sports so great is the passion you feel when you're watching it. That's, that's why we watch for that for that rush, for that adrenaline, for that endorphin rush, whatever you want to call it. But it's also what makes us so crazy angry when things don't go our way or when someone has done something that we believe is undercutting or intentionally. We believe it's always a conspiracy. They're intentionally screwing up our team. But boy, there, there, does, there does come a point when you have to say, let's, let's take a step back here. Even if this referee was the worst referee on the history of the planet, should his wife be threatened for a call he made in the game? Hmm. And when you step back and when you give yourself five minutes to breathe and let yourself catch up and maybe longer than that, if you're loaded with booze, it doesn't quite seem like such a big deal. That's worth ruining a person's life. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900 CHML. We are living in a week right now in a, on a continent where Las Vegas happened. Someone blew the windows out of a hotel, a high rise hotel and started firing a machine gun into a crowd. And at last count, I think it's 59 people were killed and 500 and something were wounded. It's a, it's just, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And in no way is there anything about that that you can make light of and nor would we want to. But in the wake of that, when you have that as the, the foundation, the beginning of what your week is, you know that people are going to be jittery anytime something happens that is potentially a threat. You know that people are on edge. You know that people are paying attention. You know that anything that looks even remotely threatening is going to be met with heavy, appropriately so, but heavy police response. Everyone knows what happened in Las Vegas. Nobody wants to consider the possibility that something like that could happen here. And even if it's not quite on that scale, nobody wants a Columbine. Nobody wants any kind of other incident. So it takes a special kind of not very bright, 
let me go through. There's three things that have happened this week, and and I I chuckle only because it just it startles me that people could be this dim in this city. The first one, the first one was at um, what school was it at this earlier this week? Uh, there was an elementary school, or no, no, earlier this week at St. Augustine Catholic Elementary School in Dundas. They find somebody planted a, now it wasn't a bomb, thankfully, but it was described as a package that was meant to look like a bomb with wires and a circuit board in the ceiling. I don't know who did it. I don't think they haven't found anyone yet, at least not in the last hour or so that I've heard of, not since I've come into the station. I mean, I suppose that the point is that clearly whoever did that knew they were going to get a kind of response in light of what had happened. Everyone's jittery. But still, knowing that when the time comes that this person gets caught, and in all likelihood they will, they're going to wonder, well, it was just a joke. Why is there such outrage about No, no. It's not just a joke. It's not just a joke. It's not funny. I don't know what the point they were trying to make, but it wasn't funny. So there's where you start. Then you move to what happened earlier today. And you probably heard about this one. It was on the news all morning at Bishop Tonus. Some former student gets on a school bus, apparently with some kind of uh, in, in imitation handgun. At least that's what was described. Gets a, it's not a student anymore, gets a ride, jumps on the school bus that I guess he or she would have taken in years past, rides to the school and then goes somewhere else. Well, the kids who don't know who this person is, see someone on the bus with a, what they think is a handgun, little surprised then that the SWAT team is all over Bishop Tonus and the school is in lockdown. I don't know if this brainiac of a former student put two and two together that maybe it's a really poor idea to get on a school bus with a handgun or imitation handgun or be around kids or be near a school or frankly be out in public with any kind of thing that looks like a gun in light of what happened in Vegas. Clearly not someone who is on their way to work for NASA. And yet, again, probably, and apparently they were picked up and they were taken in for questioning, and probably, you know, unless they really were trying to be difficult, probably are sitting there across the table from the police in the interrogation room thinking, well, what, what was such a big deal? It was just a toy gun. Yeah, it was a toy gun that no one could tell. Apparently it was a toy gun on a school bus at a school during the week of the Las Vegas shootings. Not exactly brilliance, not exactly brilliance. And then to cap it off today, this is all happening in Hamilton. Like what is, I don't know what's going on with people in this city to cap it off today. Uh, the big kicker here is that City Hall suddenly was swarming with police and security this afternoon because some goofball, I don't know if it's a man or a woman, some goofball apparently fired off an email threatening city councilors or at least elected officials. And according to the story, um, citing Las Vegas and the recent shooting in Las Vegas. And again, probably thinking, oh, I know how I can scare somebody. I know how I can get some attention. Not realizing, well, you know what? No, no. If you do this, if you mention Las Vegas today and you make a note that is somewhat threatening, uh, you probably should expect that there's going to be a large 
response to this. I just, I'm, I'm reading these things and I'm going, okay, who are the, how dumb do you have to be? I mean, any time to do these things, but this week, especially, I mean, imagine there are certain moments that, and we, you know, they're all tragic and we all know about them, but there are certain moments in that we know of where things are, things have happened that are just so tragic and so well known, Sandy Hook and again, Columbine and 9-11 and, and this week, the one in, um, in Orlando, the Pulse nightclub and all these things, you if there's ever a brain cell that's actually working in your head and you've been thinking, hey, I got a good idea. Let me fire off a threatening message. There's never a good time to do that. But this is the particularly not good time to do that. I mean, come on, people. How, how ridiculous do you actually have to be? What's wrong with people in this city? Now, again, it's three people, I understand. I don't want to make it sound like it's all Hamiltonians, but my goodness. I'm reading this like one after the other. And it's like, who are the people who actually think this is a good time to do this stuff? I mean, again, no time is a good time to do it, but especially now, especially now, just, you know, amazing, amazing. Hey, um, on a totally unrelated note, because that's enough of that. I, I, I want to move away from that, but, um, um, the uh, the independent you know the 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 newspaper over in britain um they've uh they've come out with an interesting uh, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this cuz frankly i think it's gross but they've come out with an interesting um suggestion that the best way to keep yourself looking youthful ben is to have how many showers or baths a week how many do you think how many times should you bathe a week to maintain optimum youthfulness once a week. Once a week. Blech. That is disgusting. That is disgusting. And I'm sorry. I know that some scientists say that if you wash too much, you can rub off, you can get rid of microbes and bacteria, and you can actually get sick. And I'm not talking about that you should be going and bathing three or four times a day, but once a week, come on. Well, the theory is that like you have the natural oils help your hair, I guess. I think that's like the basis of what all of this is being brought upon. Do so. you know what the office would smell like if everybody actually followed this instruction and just bathed once a week? It would not be good. It really would not be good. And and three times a week, apparently, is the absolute maximum that they say you should be bathing. The absolute maximum. Now, they do say, let me go back here, because they do say that your underarms, uh, your um, butular region... And the, uh, the groinal axis should be taken care of on a daily basis, even if it's just with a good wiping down. But, um, but for the rest of your body, they're saying just, you know, once a week is, do you buy, see, I don't buy that. I do not want to be walking into the office and sitting next to somebody who is bathed once and it's now day six. I don't look, I've told people before, when we do this show, I am in a an airlock, airtight, like a spaceship, this studio. There is no air. If someone comes in here with a cold, everybody who sets foot in here for the next week is getting the cold because the germs have nowhere to go. This is a vapor lock in here. I assure you, I don't want to come in here after Bill Kelly or Scott Thompson has bathed once a week, and I know darn well they don't want to come in here after I've bathed once a week. Ugh. 
surely that this can't be right. Surely this is ju- this is someone's having a gag to actually see how many people will follow this advice so our entire society suddenly stinks until everyone goes, okay, it was just a big joke. Go back to bathing. We, we didn't think you'd actually do it. You people are morons. You stink. No, but this is... And, and, and the, the biggest part of this, apparently the woman who is um, um, be kind of the... Yeah, the kind of the advocate or the person who is behind this is uh, uh, who is the designer Vivian Westwood, who's a big designer. Now, I am not a fashion guy. I know that name. Couldn't tell you much about her. She's fifty-one years old, but she attributes her youthfulness. I guess she's youthful. I don't know. I, I, I've never seen her, but she says that it's um, her youthfulness is from the fact that she just doesn't spend a lot of time in the shower. Well. Good for Vivian Westwood. I wonder if she would like it if all of her models wore her clothes for six straight days without bathing and then handed them back. Ugh. So Vivian Westwood says bathe once a week. Scott Radley Show says bathe twice a day. I don't have any science to back that up. I simply have my nose. If you're going to be around in good, polite company, bathe, please. That includes you, Ben. Bathe. Well, he said it, so I got to do it. Thank you. Yes. See? You got to bathe. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So there was some news today that I thought was really interesting that I did not see coming at all. I wasn't really paying attention for it, but it really caught me off guard because we just had the Juno Awards. It was just in 2015. Two years ago, we just had the Juno Awards. And they were great. They were fantastic. The city was alive. There were concerts everywhere. It was it was a terrific event. But in recent years, the Juno Awards have been a much sought after event. And as a result, you don't expect that it's going to be back here right away. There's a lot of cities that are vying for the Juno Awards to host. And yet today we hear that the folks who are behind the Juno Awards have said to Hamilton, hey, you know, Hamilton... Put in your application. We, we kind of, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, but we may have the 2019 awards available for you. No promises, but we're not going to make you, it sounds like anyway, jump through the hoops and pay all the money up front that you normally would have had to. This is what the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences said. They aren't outright handling the awards to Hamilton, but the president has written to the city saying he, quote, quote, and again, this is where you get your Monty Python, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more, say no more. He strongly believes, in quotes, Hamilton would be a good host and is reducing the cost of bidding. What do you think? Well, Tim Potasek is a friend of this show. He is the guy who runs Sonic Onion Records. He's also a guy who organizes Super Crawl and organized the 2015 Juno Awards, which were a massive success in this city. Uh, He joins me now. Tim, how are you tonight? I'm great. How are you? I am good. Now, are you interpreting these uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink uh, things as being, hey, if we want the Juno Awards in 2019, they're pretty much ours? Is that how you interpret this? <laughs> uh, no. I mean, I think that um, I think that uh, there could be a little bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink there, but I think that the process is still the process, and the city has to put in you know, all the bid documents. Uh, obviously, they didn't put them in. In February, because the city wasn't um, looking at the Juno Awards this early to come back to the city, but I could tell you that they were certainly looking at them 
coming back to the city um, at some time in the near future. It's just uh, they didn't apply to the bid process in, um, when it was first called in February uh, simply because it just it wasn't the right time or it didn't seem like the right time. So um, I guess you put it, the the, uh, the Karis people had such a, an incredible experience with us the last time um, they were here that uh, they're excited to maybe consider Hamilton and maybe there's some issues with some of the other bidders. I have no idea. Well, and that's what I was going to ask next then, because London and I think Saskatoon have both expressed, publicly expressed interest and have actually started walking down the, um, the, the, the road towards trying to get them. So if they're not, if, if Karis, the, again, the uh, Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, if they're not Tim saying, Hamilton, it's yours. Why then come and knock on our door and write a letter to the city and ask us? Because, I mean, I suppose the flip side is, if you want to use another example, we've been down the NHL road enough that we've been used as a fulcrum to try and leverage other cities to fork out more money. Is that what could be happening here? Are they trying to use Hamilton to get London or Saskatoon to spend more on the Junos? Well, I would hope not. Um, knowing how you know how well things went when they when they were here, I would hope that that's not uh, the reasoning behind it. I think it could be more practical, like potentially those the timing might not be lining up for venues, like those types of things. Like there's a lot of variables at play with these bids, and you never really know. Um, you never really know. Like Karis has an agenda and a time frame for what they're looking at and the, and the size and scope of venues that they need and what they need from the cities and you never know maybe they're just not checking the boxes and they wanted an opportunity they wanted to give Hamilton the opportunity to try and um, come in while there was still time uh, to bid for the 2019. There was a stretch in the I think it was what the late 90s when we had the Junos here something like five times or six times over the span of a decade give or take. Mm -hmm. And then it disappeared and it appeared it was never going to come back and it was gone and it was traveling around the country and it looked like it was never going to come back here. And now it's back and again, they are looking like they want to be here. First of all, what changed after the 90s and then what has changed again that we're now back in the good graces? Well, in the, in the 90s, I don't think we were ever out of the good graces. What um, After the been, 90s, I guess is what I'm saying, when they left. Right. Well, what, when it came to the 90s in the first place, um, it was uh, the first time that uh, Karis had experimented with a stadium show. And uh, I think what ended up happening at that point was that Hamilton has a lot of things going for it. It's convenient. Um, I mean, to be completely frank, the music industry, 90% of the music industry in Canada is in Toronto or Southern Ontario. So there's a, there's a vast majority of the people are local. Um, so it makes it very easy and convenient as far as travel and getting executives and getting artists to the show, um, which is is very important. And um, the reality was they, they tested Hamilton uh, in the bigger venue, and I think they really liked it and got uh, familiar with it. And over that period of the time, the board, as the board was watching the events happen in Hamilton, they changed their mandate to want to travel it more and get it out of you know being in one city uh, mostly being out of Toronto, actually, and, you know, that's why Hamilton was the first choice, because it was close enough, but also an experiment to get it outside of Toronto, get it into a larger venue. Then they decided they wanted to travel it, and what ended up happening was the success that happened in Hamilton, again, back in the 90s, uh, it seems like we breed success for the Junos here, um, 
other cities got really, really excited about the potential possibility of bidding. So Karis used that as leverage, really, to move that award show all over the country. And they've used that as a model ever since. And um, it's really worked well for them. And it also works really well for the country because it is it is fun for the country. It's fun for the people in the music business, the artists, to, to, for that show to travel. It'll be in Vancouver in 2018. And it's exciting for everybody because uh, it's nice to get to a different town. If I recall correctly, the day or two after the last Junos, I had you on the show here, and uh, you were a beaten man, having having not slept for about a week and probably longer than that. Uh, first of all, would you be the guy again if it did come here? And second of all, are you up for another go-around like that, or is that uh, too exhausting for one guy to do twice? Uh, well, I mean, I was only one cog in a big cog of people. There's lots of people involved in the bid. Um, I'm certainly up for it. If I get the nod, I will accept it um i certainly would love to be involved i love the juno awards the people that run it they're fabulous and then the people in hamilton that get behind it and were part of the team were an incredible group of people to work with so and i learned a lot from the process so you know it's a, it's a great learning experience i think um i think i could definitely if i was if i was asked i would certainly do it and i think we would do an even better job than we did the last time like at this point i think Hamilton holds the really holds the torch for the best run host committee and the the most successfully run Juno awards in a in a city that you know, to anyone um, in the country. So we've got a high bar to uh, to equate to moving forward. It, I mean, it certainly it does. And, and I'm wondering when you say you learn, what would I mean? I know I'm putting you right on the spot because we're not even for sure in yet. But when you were done, was there something you looked at and you said, you know what, it went great. was exactly as I wanted, but there was one thing that I really wish we would have done differently. Was there that one thing? Um, I'd say there's probably a few things. I mean, it's all a matter of time and raising money and being able to do uh, fun events. Like, you know, we brainstormed when we first put our host committee together. We did a big brainstorming session and came up with like a million ideas. And then there, a lot of them are very imaginary because there's no way you could afford to do them all. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. you have to look at them and then pick the ones that make the most sense together and, and create a re, you know a reasonable package that you know that you can go out there and sell and find the funds to be able to manage and, and pull off. And that's what we did. So there's lots of things on that board um, that we would you know I would love to see happen um, and I think we could probably do a number of them because we have the experience and we know where to you know where to dig deep in those pockets to find the dollars to do it and how to make it work within the whole scheme of the overall event yes I'm looking forward to next time to the rush street concert I'm into it yeah I love it yep no I definitely on the board yeah, please, please put it on the board right near the top. I mean, it may cost 10 or $12 million, but, you know, it's, uh, it's worth it. Um, d- speaking of money, does, does an event like this directly make the city money, or do we look at it and we say, well, in spin-off benefits and things like that, that this can make the city money, or economically? Like, how, how do we look at the Juno Awards? Well, they do have a massive economic impact on the city, for sure, um, and it is, it's, uh, you know, it's direct to business, and there's lots of indirect um, uh, positives as well. So I think, you know, they average always over 10 to $12 million in economic impact for the city mm-hmm. and hotel rooms and overnight stays and um, uh, restaurant visits and 
merchandise sales and, you know, everything that goes along with the tourism dollar spend. So it's, uh, it's quite an impact for the city. And it's really, I think it's been important. It's one of those really key, critical, important events to be involved with in the city or within the country. I mean, is there anything that is uh, tangible that is left behind at the end of it? Is there, uh, you know, updates to concert halls or anything? Do, do those kind of things happen or is this more of a memory and a, an, an exposure to the city kind of thing? I'd say it's more memory and exposure. I mean, you know, uh, ideas, uh, concepts get left behind. So people that are involved uh, in the event and not even in the event get, you know, get ideas about how you can improve and do things better. So, that, you know, they don't really bring, um, there's not a capital investment, so to speak, but that's not really what it's about. It's more about the, the vibe and creating an incredible, uh, you know, an incredible week and um, making it somewhere where people, you know, want to live, right? Like, so it just adds to the vibrancy of, uh, of what Hamilton has created. I would assume, Tim, and I only got a minute or so left here, but I would assume that uh, if the 2019 Junos were to come here, that there's plenty of time to do everything you would want to do. Um, like, would I be right that if, if we were to find out in the next little while that even with all of your ideas that you've had, that there's still plenty of time to implement those things? Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, we would, um, if we did get it, I think we would know fairly quickly. Um, so that's a positive. And from knowing fairly quickly, we would want to you know get things set up with the host committee and be liaising with the, the Junos very fast. I mean, the one advantage we had the last time I came to town was that we got way ahead of everything. Um, and we were having meetings far in advance of when any other host committee had had meetings. Mm. So, and that's why I'm asking, cause you guys were, were able to get so much done cause you were so early on it. Yeah, it's really critical. I mean, it's very important. The more time you've got and that you don't waste and you really get down to business, just gives you the more opportunity to put together a more solid, easier ex- plan to execute. So, I think we're in good shape as far as uh, their decisions. I think their decision process will actually be uh, quite quick because uh, they'll always want to announce the next town um, just prior to the to the city that they're um, they're launching in. And Vancouver, of course, is coming quickly, um, and they're going to want to make a decision. You know, probably I think by November. Uh, last thing before I let you go, one of the things that made the Juno so good here in Hamilton last time was that it wasn't just a show on a Sunday night or whatever it was at First Ontario Centre, although that was part of it. It was for the whole weekend or maybe even before that, for three or four days before then, you had concerts at places all over the place. Would you expect that if it was to come back, was the feedback such that all those concert halls and all those bars and pubs and restaurants, they're all back in? Uh, absolutely. I, I would think that um, we would want to expand it too. Like we definitely want to incorporate the entire city within the event um, and, uh, you know, and focus certain things at certain times. We're doing pop-up shows even outside of the city uh, in Burlington, London, um, and a couple other towns uh, in southern Ontario to like really create a vibe and, and want to get tourists into into Hamilton for the Juno Awards. So, um, absolutely want to spread the dollars around and make sure there's things going on on all the pockets of Hamilton, the greater Hamilton area of like, you know, Dundas and Waterdown and Stony Creek and the mountain and really, um, really create uh, a full vibe for the entire town. Well, remember, uh, put at the top of the list, the Rush pop-up show, maybe in the lobby of CHML here, that would be okay too. But, you know, wherever you want to put Rush, just give us a heads up and we'll be there. 
Okay, right in your office. That, hey, I, I'm all for that. I'll, you know, I'll even <laughs> fill in as a backup singer. <laughs> they don't want me to, but they can turn the mic off, but I'll just be there just for you know encouragement as if oh, they need perfect. it. Tim Potasik, uh, the guy who is behind Supercrawl, the guy who made the Junos work last time. He does a lot of things in this city. Tim, appreciate the time today. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. It's a, uh, look, it, it would be, the, when the Junos were here, if you if you took advantage, if you were part of it, you know that it was it was really, really good. And even if you're saying, well, I don't like that music. Well, it wasn't that music. There were all kinds of music. There was classical music. There was jazz. There was, you know, I went to one, I went to one show because it's a true story. Um, I had heard that a singer that I, a music, a musician that I really liked was showing up because the band that was playing was somehow connected to them. And so I heard that this musician was going to show up to watch this band. Well, they didn't show up and the band I'll be honest, was so loud in a small venue that you could no longer discern pitch changes in the music. It just was one loud noise. I think I I exploded my eardrums. Now, that was not necessarily, I mean, I love loud music. That was not necessarily my thing, but there was something for everybody. And it was a remarkably great event because there was stuff everywhere. There were little venues, there were big venues. It's a wonderful thing to have in the city. And, and the fact that Tim and his team did such a good job explains, I think, why they would want to have it back here. Not everyone, not every city has pulled it off like that. I'm hoping it comes because it, it really, as I say, it really was as cliche as it sounds when you say, oh, there's something for everyone. There literally was something for everyone. Is If you liked music, period. And come on, who doesn't like some kind of music? Perhaps if your only style of music is Gregorian chants, you were left out in the cold. I don't know if they actually had a, a performance of Gregorian chants. That that may have been overlooked, I'm not sure. But pretty much every other kind of music, there was something of that style playing somewhere. And on top of everything else, it was a wonderful opportunity for the Hamilton, for the local musical community for those people who may not get to be on stage at first Ontario center may not get to win an award may not get the huge audience but you can look here here's an opportunity for them and someone's going to come and listen and maybe they're going to be exposed to that for the first time and maybe because they're local and they're doing their thing maybe they open some doors it was a great thing I, I I really hope that somehow this thing pops up in Hamilton again and and here's the other thing because I know, we got to go, but I know one of the concerns always is, well, yeah, but how much is this going to cost us? How much is this going to cost us? And it's a fair question. It is absolutely a fair question. But it sounds as though, and this is part of the reason why I'm, I'm enthusiastic or I'm so enthusiastic about this. It sounds as though the folks behind it are saying, you don't have to give us all the stuff that some other cities will. It sounds like they have basically said some of the costs can be shaved off so that, you know, we liked it so much that it won't cost Hamilton nearly as much as it otherwise would have. Anything is going to cost some money. What we don't want is events that are wildly spending, wildly expensive. We don't need those kind of things. It doesn't sound like this would be that because of the success of the last one. If that's the case, 
And that would be the caveat I would put on it. I don't want, look, as much as I would love the Junos, I don't really want the Junos if it's going to cost us $30 million to bring them here. But if, it, if it's going to cost us a million bucks and we can bring in 10, 12, 15 and spin off hotel rooms and restaurants and re- rentals and on and on and on, uh, you know what? It costs money to put an event on and that, you know, as long as it's reasonable, let's do it. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.